Good evening, everybody. And if you haven't turned to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you can go ahead and get to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It's where we'll be for the next eight weeks. And um, let me just warn you ahead of time, this will not be pretty. This, this, this church had issues, to put it lightly. And while we sometimes romanticize the early church and think that somewhere along the way Christianity has just messed it all up, and in many ways we have in places, but in, not entirely, uh, come back to this book and remind yourself they had some severe issues that um, I haven't really heard of happening here yet, and by God's grace won't happen. So, um, however, yeah, <laughs> however, the ugliness here is what we're going to see is um, Paul is honest, and we need to be honest too about what's going on, about what to address, about how to fix it. It's time that we stop brushing things under the rug and pretending they're okay, um, but we need to address them. God said in Deuteronomy that, beware, your sin will find you out. And he's warning Israel, don't think that you're somehow going to get away with something just because it's not going to affect you immediately. There'll come a day down the road when the consequences will be finally reaped. Um, so that's something we can learn as we look at this. Uh, but what we're going to do is we're going to pray. We'll get into the introduction. Then I'll explain the theme we'll be looking at throughout the book. And uh, we will get into our particular chapters tonight. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for being the head of the church. And forgive us for when we try to be that and steer it into the wrong place and drive it to our own destruction. Lord, we ask that you would reclaim the throne of your church, that we would be people who follow you. So I pray that as we look at your word tonight, you would use it to speak to us and that our hearts would be molded and shaped to be like yours. And so we give you all glory and honor tonight and ask that we would be able to see that in you. So open our eyes and our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So Corinth, a little quick introduction to the city itself so we can orient ourselves with the people that are receiving this letter and get you know, they were, they were people like us <laughs> with different um, loves and different problems and a slightly different culture. But other than that, they're human beings like us. So we're orienting ourselves with them. Then I'm going to explain what this one message thing on the back is, and then uh, we will get straight into our text. So first of all, Corinth is, as you may know, it's a Greek city, and it's uh, down south of Greece, and it's on an isthmus. And um, that's an important feature to the city because uh, Greek, I'm sorry, Corinth was considered the gateway of East and West, that the entire Roman Empire found a connection between East and West right there in Corinth, because there they were positioned in the middle of two seaports, one seaport going to the East, the other seaport going to the West. Now, being in the middle of two seaports meant that this was a double sailor's town, a double merchant's town. It wasn't just once because it had a port like Ephesus had, but it was super big because there's two ports from both sides of the world coming and converging there in Corinth. So all kinds of people from around the empire would be coming to Corinth and you have all kinds of different styles of life happening. Now, 
Furthermore, um, it was not just in the middle of two ports, but Corinth literally was the bridge to these two ports. You see, sailors did not like to sail around the coast of Corinth because it was a very treacherous area with storms and turbulent seas. So rather than risking the loss of ship and cargo by going around the coast, often they would simply park in one port and either, if the, small, if the ship was small enough, they would literally carry the ship through a certain region of Corinth and to the other port and then continue on. Or if it was a much larger ship, they would simply unload it, carry it through Corinth, and then put it on another ship on the other port. So Corinth was literally in the center of an, the intersection of two ports with lots of traffic going back and forth. So this was a city that was at the very heartbeat of a lot of activity. So you can see right away, being the bridge between the east and the west of the empire, that this is a very, very crucial location. And so they get lots and lots of people there. And you can see why Paul would want to be there and why he spent a year and a half in this city. In 146 BC, so we're talking um, 150-ish years, no, almost 200 years before Paul is writing this letter, uh, the Roman Empire destroyed Corinth. It was its own independent city, and Rome took it and claimed it and destroyed it. Well, 100 years after that, so 44 BC, Julius Caesar, the first emperor of Rome, he decides to rebuild the city of Corinth. Now, when he rebuilt the city of Corinth, it needed a new start. So they were looking for people to move to the city. And guess who moved to the city of Corinth? The early colonizers were former slaves, people who were freed from slavery. And those people couldn't really move up in the ranks of society on the social ladder. So when they heard about a new Corinth being built, all of the freed slaves were thinking, this is the great place. It's the land of opportunity. It's a fresh start. So Corinth was literally founded upon a society of freed slaves. And it was a place where people had opportunity that they could not get anywhere else. And at the time of Paul's writing, the city is hardly 100 years old. And so in many ways, Corinth is a lot like America in the sense that we're a very young nation and we are considered the land of opportunity. And a lot of disgruntled people that couldn't get much out of Europe came over here and now from a lot of other regions too. And that's how America has been built up. It's a land of opportunity. And so you see that in Corinth. There's a lot of aggression, a lot of competitiveness for people who were once nobodies to become somebodies. And then finally, about Corinth, is that every two years they held a very, very important event called the Isthmian Games. I have a hard time with that word, Isthmus, Isthmus, um, the Isthmian Games. In other words, it was, it was second only to the Olympic Games. I was dreading that all night, by the way, so I just <laughs> fell right into it. Um, there's the Olympic Games, and then Corinth had their games, which are second most popular. Happened, like I said, every two years. And to get the sense of how popular these games were and how important the games were to the city, the most important position in the city was the administrator of the games. That was the most important position in the city. That's what everybody wanted to become, was the game administrator. So that gives you an idea of what a big deal these games were every two years. And think about it. It brought a flux of people to this very accessible area in the empire. 
they all come and they... Um, Oh, what do you do when you get a bunch of people coming into your city? You make lots and lots of money. So Corinth swelled economically when these games happened. They love these games. They want to keep them happening. And of course, you get a bunch of people coming over to visit and the hotels are packed out. What do you need? You need tents. And we know that Paul did his tent making business in Corinth. And so that would be one of the reasons why he went to tent making is because it was a very easy way for him to make some money on the side to help support his ministry. So, uh, one interesting thing, though, about these games is, of course, you had all the typical Olympic games. I'm sure they had baseball and football and all those things, too. <laughs> I wish. But um, one thing that they did have was uh, speech competitions. And Corinth was ecstatic about speakers. Uh, rhetoric is usually what you call it back in the time. It was uh, the, the, the art of oratory. And so they would have competitions between speakers and see who can outspeak the other, who can out-debate the other. They loved, they loved public speaking. And in many ways, I can imagine why. In a, in a time when music isn't as sophisticated as it is today, we love music or any other sort of entertainment that you have. You go see concerts, you go see sporting events, you go see, we go do these things that may not have been quite as um, opportunistic back then. But speaking, people were speaking all the time on the street corners, in the marketplace, in the philosophy schools. There were philosophers that traveled from city to city preaching their, their ordeal and making a living off of that. And Corinth happened to love it. I can actually imagine it being a lot like American Idol, only <laughs> instead of people getting up and singing and making a fool of themselves or trying to become better than the other person, they're speaking long, lengthy discourses about, you know, trying to impress one another. And you can almost imagine it if we uh, decided to hold an event like that here. Um, it's uh, So you think you can preach. <laughs> and we had people come up one after another trying to outdo each other. And we all, Pastor Mike and myself and Dr. Denny and Pastor John and Dr. Bravo, we, we sit there as a panel and we start saying, uh, you know, like you'd be like Simon, say really mean things. And like you just, who you don't even know what you're doing. You're not even Christian or I don't know, something really mean. And then um, you can have you know the nice soft-hearted one on the panel like oh you but you had so much passion you know um at least you tucked your shirt in i don't know but um so but that, that, that was corinth's thing that was what they were into and so philosophers would come around and they would preach and uh the it's, the the games is where uh, a lot of them would square off so interesting that that's what this town was like so we'd go hear concerts like ooh good sound um they would go and hear famous orators and say ooh that's a good sound so um that's that now if you will let's go to chapter 1 verse 10 and by the way while you look at 1 verse 10 um you, you've heard it said before that Corinth was a very uh, immoral city in which it's been likened unto the Las Vegas in America. This Corinth would be the Las Vegas of the Roman Empire. Um, that's partially true, but partially exaggerated. Most of the historical writings that tell us that Corinth was a very dirty place. In fact, there was a phrase, you know, you would be called a Corinthian woman if you were a loose woman. Um, most of those sources refer to old Corinth, the Corinth before Rome destroyed it. So there's, there's not a lot of clarity whether or not the new Corinth, the one that we're dealing with, was quite as poorly managed as the old Corinth. Um, now, obviously, there's sexual immorality. You're going to see later on that a man ha- uh, sleeps with his father's wife. 
which is either his mother or one of his father's many wives, which both ways would be a huge problem, um, and in the church. So you can see that there is some looseness in the city, but all of Rome was, frankly, very loose. All of the cities of Rome. It was part of the culture. So um, if you've heard that Corinth was the worst of the worst, that may be a little exaggerated. It was bad, but it may not have been quite the worst of the worst. So just to clear that up. All right. 1 verse 10. Paul says this. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and same judgments. So here's his appeal. This is what you would call the thesis of his entire letter. It's his proposition. Here he makes known the purpose for his writing. I want there to be no divisions. I want you to agree. I want you guys to stop squabbling. (laughs) Be in agreement on your judgment and all things. So he's calling them to oneness. He wants them to be one. And that's the issue he sees in Corinth, is that they're not one, but they're fragmented. So don't be divided. Be in agreement. Be in unity. I want oneness. So what we're going to look at in each teaching through this letter is we're going to see what is Paul calling together to be one. And tonight we're going to see... uh, First, that he's going to ask the Corinthians to hold to one message. You're given one message. And I don't want you to debate or to argue or to divide yourselves over multiple messages. So-and-so has a better message than (laughs) so-and-so. He wants them to hold to one message and find oneness there. We're also going to see down the road, there's going to be one foundation. There's going to be uh, one table. There's going to be one body, one resurrection. He's going to talk about keep yourselves together in oneness. Now, this isn't too unlike Jesus, who prayed before he went to the cross in John 17, verse 20, this. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me, through their word. So he's praying for his disciples. Hey, I pray for my disciples and all those, you and I, who believe in their message. Jesus is praying for the entire history of Christianity. I pray for them that they may all be one. Just as, Father, you are in me and I am in you. That they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus prays for oneness. Why? He says, because I and the Father are one. God is one. Hear, O Israel. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. The Lord your God is one. Which was an amazing statement at the time because paganism was the religion of the world and paganism believes that they have multiple gods. And in paganism, the multiple gods aren't always necessarily in kumbaya with one another. They're often at war with one another and can't stand each other. So the gods go around and uh, play tricks on each other and they're fighting with one another. And if you've ever heard the, the creation story of Babylon, basically everything came about from one god having sex with another god and then the gods being unhappy with their baby gods and killing their baby gods and the baby gods fighting back and calling up dragons. And it was a, it was a chaotic scene. That's paganism. Multiple gods in disarray and division. 
And what Paul is calling us to is oneness. Why? Because our God is one. And if we're going to reflect at all in any way the God that we worship and follow, we must be one. If we're not one, if we're factioned and divided, then we're going to be looking like a paganistic religion. We're going to all be resembling our own little God, the deity of whatever. I'm the God of coolness and you're the God of lameness. And we're all going to fight and go in our ways. And that's not at all what the true God of the universe looks like. And so Paul calls them, please, I I appeal to you. I plead with you. Be one. Be in agreement. Be not divided. So that's the thesis of his entire letter. Then he's going to tell us why he's... He's giving us this thesis, and you're going to see right away that they're doing a very poor job at being one. Verse 11. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people. Now, Chloe was likely a house. uh, She owned a house, and a church would have met in her house. That's the way the churches met. They didn't have massive buildings. They all multiple houses with um, several believers in each house. So in this particular house gathering, Chloe has reported... That there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that, so here's these examples of quarreling. Each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, another name for Peter, or I follow Christ. (laughs) Is Christ divided? He's asking. Is, is Christ, this sounds absurd. So, oh, I get it. You, you, you worship a quarter of Christ and you worship a quarter of Christ. And it's all about who gets the best part of him, right? Like, this is ridiculous. Christ is not divided. He's one. Why are you guys divided? Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? Was this whole thing about who's the best leader? Was, was it your leader who saved you? Did he die for you? Do you baptize into Pastor Mike's name? I think that God, I thank God, verse 14, that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, who were probably very important leaders, so Paul wanted to pass it on to them, so that none of you may say that you were baptized in my name. Come to think of it. Now, Paul, uh, by the way, he doesn't write his letters. He has a scribe writing them. So he's, he's actually verbalizing them to a scribe who's writing them down as he goes. So you can really hear this actual moment where Paul's like, oh, well, actually, scribe, add this. I did, I guess, baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptize anybody else. So you can just hear him rambling and like, oh, footnote. And verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So that there is your thesis paragraph. Verse 10 being the statement, I want oneness. Then what follows is this reason. This is what's happening, and this is why I'm writing, I want oneness, because you guys are not one. There are factions. You're divided. You're, you're grouping up under your favorite teachers. That can't be. I want you guys to follow one message, not multiple messengers, one message. And now what Paul's going to do in these chapters is he's going to tell us many, many ways. I and Apollos and everybody else who is a true teacher of the gospel, we teach only one message. Now we may have multiple methods, Okay, we may sound different. We may come across with different aspects or different dynamics or different giftings. But there's one message behind all of it. 
And that's what Paul wants them to see. So in other words, you can't pick sides like somehow Apollos and Paul are at odds with one another. And actually, by the way, it could have been that they were slightly at odds with one another because Apollos seemed to have a weird view of baptism. You see in the book of Acts who he had to be corrected on. And Paul here mentions, did I baptize any of you? So baptism might have been a little bit of an issue here. But the difference between them is not that they have different messages. It's that they have different practices. Paul might say, hey, we should have women cover their heads while they worship, as you'll read later. And Apollos might say, I don't care if everybody dances through the halls waving flags and going crazy. Paul would not like that. He says, have order. (laughs) But that's where we see they may have different practices, but Paul is going to show them no matter what our practices are, we're, we're going for the same message. Okay. And I need, I need you Corinthian church to see that it's not Paul against Apollos. It's Paul and Apollos, different methods, one message. And that's, that's what he's going to show us. So how are we doing? I want you to be one. Oh, there are factions. I follow this person. I follow that person. Now, Cephas, Peter, did he ever go to Corinth? We don't know. Did anybody know him? Maybe. Maybe people had heard him teach somewhere and came to Corinth like, hey, you guys got it wrong. Peter said this. And like, so they started a little Peter faction. Well, there's a huge Paul faction because Paul is the first. And then Apollos came once Paul left. And Apollos got a really big faction because he was this dynamic speaker. And so Peter's got his little posse and Paul and Apollos. And then there's, what's this, the, the faction of Jesus? Oh, so Jesus is not for any of you. Jesus is on his own over here. Can you imagine that? Like, who would actually say, I'm not a part of the Jesus faction. That's for Christians. I'm a part of the Paul faction. Like, what is that? It sounds absurd that people would actually say, oh, there's four different factions and only one of them is Jesus's faction. No, no. What this is, is these are are people, you know them, I know them. They're people that go around telling you how everybody else has got it wrong. They've got it right. So follow me right? You know, those people, I follow Jesus. I don't know what they all do. They're up to something weird. I follow Jesus. Do you know what I hear when I hear that? I hear people actually saying, I follow myself. I got it best. And I want you to make me feel better by following me too. And everybody else has got it wrong. Everybody. I've, I've heard, um, yeah, a lot of things shot down, which, well, you know what? You may not agree with their practice or their method, but the question is, what is their message, right? So Paul wants to get rid of these factions. He wants to bring the Corinthians into one. So how are they doing? Not well. There's a lot of factions. So how is Paul going to address this? He addresses it like this. Um, in verse 17, for starts, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ should be emptied of its power. Not with words of eloquent wisdom. Now, I've talked before, I I think it was when we were in Thessalonians, about the sophist philosophers. Um, Very big, and Corinth was no exception. Um, Sophist philosophy was huge. Sophist is uh, basically, it's a stem for the word wisdom. So they were wisdom philosophers. And we get our words sophisticated, right? Um, We get our word Sophia, the name. Sophia means wisdom. Uh, So these sophist philosophers, uh, what they're all about is primarily two things. Popularity. They want popularity. And to please all their hearers. 
So a sophist philosopher, I'm just going to rename for our sake. Um, I'm going to call them pop preachers. Because <laughs> if you know what I mean, uh, there's, there's pop music and then there's like actually good music. And a lot of people like pop music and that's fine because it's got a catchy beat and all. But honestly, pop music, it, why are there new hits coming out every single week? Because pop music is very old and you have to keep recycling it in order to make a new, fresher sound. Like, oh, yeah, cool. All right. Taylor Swift got a new song. Like pop music. Um, then you got classical music, which has stood the test of time. Not everybody's into. Why? Because classical music has depth, and it's complex, it's complex, and it's complicated. There's many. It's almost unfriendly because you kind of... Pop music repeats the same words over and over and over. Let's put it this way. Hymns versus contemporary Christian worship music, right? So there's a certain level of inaccessibility towards hymns because there's so many words and like the, this weird melody, and it sort of seems like it's chaotically going wherever it wants on a, on a whim. It doesn't really repeat something... Uh, familiar you know there's no familiar cycle to get into but pop music and contemporary christian music is like oh yep seeing the same course again 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 all right cool one word five times let's do it that's the idea um and so pop preachers take that idea and paul is saying that um i'm not doing that See, so the pop preachers would go around and they're seeking, first of all, to please everybody. So their idea was to make what they say sound good, primarily make it sound good. Substance is very, very secondary. It's got to be eye candy. It's got to be pleasing to the ear. The people got to love it. So they will preach in a way to get people to be happy. They want to please their audience. Those are the pop preachers. And not only please the audience, but they want popularity. So that's why they're pleasing them. They want a bunch of followers. And actually, these pop preachers would be very competitive against one another. Remember, Corinth is obsessed with the act of speaking. So they are all into this. And you got your celebrity pop preachers. And this guy, and we love him. And he's trying to, like, gain followers. And he's talking trash on this guy. Kind of sounds like politics, right? And a lot of talk and not a lot of substance. And so they go and they preach. And that's what they're doing. And so they're trying to gain popularity. And that's where the competitiveness comes between them. That's where factions within the city, it was very common. It was, oh, yeah, so I like sports, right? Like, who are you, Dodgers or Angels? And, you know, people are like, ah, about that. Who are you for? Oh, I'm of Apollos. I'm of Peter. And so the church is beginning to adopt the mentality of the city. Which preacher is our pop preacher? Who are we going to side with? Who are we going to follow? Who we think is most popular? So when Paul says in verse 17 that he preached the gospel not with words of eloquent wisdom, it does not mean that he was against eloquence. In fact, if he literally meant that, he's lying because his letters, as all Greek scholars will tell you, his letters are complex and of high class rhetoric. Paul knows what he's doing and communicating. So if he says he's against eloquence, he's contradicting himself in his very own writing. And the, the hearers of this letter be like, wait a minute, Paul. So they know he's not saying that. Paul's not against making the gospel hearable. It should be hearable. So he's not like, okay, all eloquence, put it aside. Listen up. God sent his son. Why are you sleeping? God sent his you know it, that wasn't his point his point wasn't let's make it as boring as possible so that there's nothing there except the content paul was all about making sure it was presentable and acceptable to the ear there's an art to it and paul used the art and we should too you know god wrote a book and we should be doing our best to make it beautiful 
Like when Hollywood makes movies from some famous book and many people who are actually readers, they always bemoan how the movie ruined it. There's a certain standard in which we expect those who communicate something that was beautiful to keep it beautiful and not ruin it. And when James 3 says that God will hold teachers to a higher form of judgment, I often wonder if that doesn't mean, did you, uh, did you belittle the beauty of my book or did you show it? And sometimes I feel like a lot of us, me, me and preachers, I'm saying us, uh, we, we need to be careful that we aren't guilty of making God's word less than what it really is by making it boring. Um, that's quite a calling, right? To reflect the beauty of God through his word. And we need to work hard at doing that. So Paul's not saying, um, you know, I didn't come with eloquent wisdom. So in other words, I came very boring. What he's saying is, I did not come preaching like a pop preacher. I did not come solely for the purpose of pleasing my hearers and gaining popularity. Now, I know he's saying that because he says he, what he did preach was the cross. If you will look with me at chapter 2, verse 1, he's going to expound the same thought. 2, verse 1, he says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Uh, again, another phrase for pop preaching. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That was my message, and that's what I stuck to. Jesus Christ and him crucified. It wasn't all about this pleasing people and gaining popularity. I was about preaching as beautifully as possible, Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you, verse 3, in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Why? Because I know I'm going against the grain right now. And my speech and my message were not, again, another pop preaching phrase were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So I came not to please my hearers and grab followers and popularity. How does, how does the hearers believe him? How do they know that? Because when I preached the cross of Jesus, I proved that I could care less about pleasing people or gaining popularity. What? Yeah. The cross was the worst message Paul can go into his city and start declaring. The worst message. For example, look at verse 18. Chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. The word of the cross is folly. Now, we read that and we're like, okay, so unbelievers just don't understand it. And that's true. But listen. Go, you got to go into the Roman Empire. You got to go into their thinking, their mindset. When they hear cross, what comes to their mind? Something they've seen often. Everybody has seen a cross. Now, a cross was the symbol of Rome. It was a statement. It was a symbol. It was basically mass. You know, when you don't have TV and news, pub, a news broadcast, the cross became that. When a person was hung on a cross, it was Rome announcing to the world, hey, this is what happens when you choose to be a rival of Rome. You lose, so don't even think about it. And that's how they kept the empire going for hundreds of years. Crucifixion was brutal and ugly, and it sent a message to the world, don't you dare, or this will happen. And so Paul goes into Corinth and starts proclaiming somebody whom Rome trampled over and said, hmm. 
yeah, Jesus, Rome defeated him on a cross. Woo! Everyone's like, oh, yeah, we're following you, not. That's not the right way to go about it. Uh, who was crucified? Criminals. Criminals were crucified. You know that it was the thieves on the cross next to Jesus, right? And actually, uh, it's believed that a better translation than thieves would be insurrectionists, rebels, a movement of people who were trying to kill people and start a violent revolution. Jesus was crucified in between them. Anybody who walked by a cross, the person suffering on it knew that person did something bad. They're condemned as criminals. Who else was, who else was killed on a cross? Slaves. Always slaves. Never, never Roman citizens. The cross was too gross for a Roman citizen to die that way. They dignified the citizens of Rome. But slaves or foreigners, who Jesus would be, by the way, he would be considered a foreigner. He's not a Roman citizen. Foreigners and slaves, they go to the cross. That's their form of punishment. Where was Jesus crucified? Jerusalem. Oh, yeah, Rome's favorite place in the world. Caesar made many appearances there. (laughs) Not at all. Actually, Caesar sent his worst rulers over to Jerusalem just to get rid of them. Go, Go over there. Jerusalem was considered, if you got that post as a Roman ruler, as a, as a government official, you were groaning, you were kicking and screaming, and you were saying, I promise I will do better so I can get out of this place. Jerusalem was considered the slum of the empire. This was not a place that the sophisticated Greeks and Romans wanted to go. Not at all. And that's where Jesus was crucified. So what am I saying in all this? What I'm saying is when Paul begins to preach about a king a son of God who was crucified as a common criminal like a slave in the slum of the Roman Empire as a traitor against the crown of Caesar. Oh, that's going to win a lot of hearers. That's going to gain a lot of popularity. It's actually shameful and embarrassing that the church proclaimed a crucified leader. Shameful and embarrassing. And yet... Paul said, this is all I wanted you to know, that Jesus was crucified. So in other words, let's back back up to what I was saying. He wants one message. There were pop preachers who were out to please people and gain popularity. And then there's Paul who says, I denied that form of preaching because I said that we follow a crucified slave and criminal of the Roman Empire. Therefore, Paul's saying, you know I didn't come to please you and to gain popularity. You know that's true. Now, now you're also thinking, right? Why would Paul then do that? Why would, the church em- why would the church emphasize the worst part of their message? Because they believed that in the worst and ugliest moment of human history, the wisdom and glory of God was revealed there. Now, look what Paul said again in 2 verse 5. So, again, he's saying there in in chapter 2, I did not come like a pop preacher. I came actually preaching something that was very foolish, shameful. Oh, yeah, uh, shameful. Why? Verse 5. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I wanted you who believed to know beyond shadow of a doubt that you were not converted by man's persuasive words like some pop preacher who gained followers. You're like, oh, look at them. He, he persuaded all of them that he's the best speaker. I wanted to make sure none of you thought that I came and somehow convinced you or persuaded you with my words. No, 
not man's persuasive words, but God's powerful work, that that's what saved you. Because if you heard that grotesque message and decided to believe and decided to join the church, you know God got to you. Because nobody in their right mind says, oh, that's the best preacher here in Corinth. Not at all. So Paul says, I went against the countercultural way of preaching so that you would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God's work is active in you right now. So that you would have no doubts about it. Now, the pop preachers, this was considered wisdom in Corinth. To have mastery over words, you are wise. So some in the church then began to be disgruntled. Well, Paul just preaches this crucified guy, and they're all, look, wisdom movement. Like, we got to be wise here. we gotta, we got to wise up in the church. And so guess who did this? Well, a preacher named Apollos was very good at imitating pop preachers. And so he would then be, he was much better orator than Paul, apparently, at least maybe he relied more upon uh, the tricks of the pop preachers and, and Paulus wanted to please hearers and gain popularity. And um, this is what started to happen. Hey, hey, we, we need more wisdom here. Like, like Apollos is giving, like the pop preachers are doing. And what Paul wanted to argue was, hey, no, that's worldly wisdom. All right. God's wisdom is a little bit different than that. And though I'm saying that, yes, I denied the pop preacher format of wisdom preaching, I did not exclude wisdom from what I said whatsoever. It's that the wisdom of God is subtle and secrete and surprising. It's like an underdog team, right? A 16 seed team beating a one seed team in the March Madness. That would be upsetting. That would be amazing. That would be shocking. And Paul's like, this is what God did. He, he, he did something on this earth that everybody overlooks and says, oh, how dare you mention crucifixion at this polite dinner party? That is disgusting. Um, he uses this to elevate his plan and wisdom for the ages. Now, Paul wants them to see this. He wants them to see that not only did I avoid secular wisdom so that you would actually understand that God saved you through his power, but I actually gave you a better wisdom than they can ever offer. It's there. Look at verse 6 of chapter 2. 2 of verse 6. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Those who are willing to accept the message of the cross of Jesus and embrace the shame and realize that they are strangers and foreigners on this earth, they are the ones that get to enter into a new era of wisdom. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for glory, for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written... What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined. What God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows what a person's thoughts are except for the Spirit of that person which is in him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. 
Now we have received not the spirit of this world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths as those to those who are spiritual. What is Paul saying? There is a wisdom that is not of this world, it's of the next world to come. And the Holy Spirit is given to those who accept the message of the cross by the power of God's work. And the Spirit gives them insight to understand and to see this wisdom. That beyond the superficial pop wisdom and pop preaching of the culture, there is an actual deeper wisdom underlying underneath the surface. And the Spirit enables a man to see it. It's as if Paul is saying the wisdom of God is too glorious for blind people to understand. Try to explain a sunset to the blind Try, try. What are you going to tell them? How are you going to explain that? And that's what Paul's saying. Look, there is a wisdom here that you cannot explain to the rest of the world. They simply need the Holy Spirit eyes to see it. The Holy Spirit will interpret it to them. They will get it there. So um, the wisdom of God is eternal. As we saying, it's for the next age. It's here now and it's for the next. It's going to keep going. The wisdom of this world is temporal, just like classical music, right? I mean, eternal in the sense of it's... Bach wrote how many years ago? People still play his music and listen to it all the time. I mean, it's surviving pop music, though. Um, Who remembers the number one hit last year? You know, Um, it's eternal. It's uh, it's deep. There's, there's a profundity to it. The pop preachers were giving superficial messages. Remember, it's all about sound, sound over substance. It's, did they entertain me? Not, was there something that changed my life? Um, the wisdom of God is about the mastery over one's life. You have wisdom. You are learning to master life. That's what the Proverbs are all about, right? But if you have the world's wisdom, you're learning mastery over words. That was Corinth's idea. Oh, he speaks well. He's a wise person. That's, that's their wisdom. Very superficial again. Uh, God's wisdom is spiritual. But the world's wisdom is natural. Meaning it's, it's easily discerned by one's senses. It's just, it's there. Superficial. Oh, yeah, I see that. I taste that. It's, it's about making something taste. You know, it's like making food. Going all about taste and not nutrition. Well, if we all live that way. <laughs> I would stock my entire freezer with ice cream. And there would only be nuts in the fridge to go on top of the ice cream. (laughs) And fruit. (laughs) Obviously, that's not the best way. Natural. Okay, we talk about the natural food movement, like non-GMO, all natural, organic. Like, that's great for food, right? Because man has kind of manipulated food to be something (laughs) chemically Uh, But when it comes to human beings, the Bible says that the organic man is a very dangerous thing. We don't want the natural man. We want something that's been enhanced by the spirit of God. So the wisdom of God is spiritual. That's what you saw there in verse 13, that the spiritual interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God for they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So. There's a wisdom that you need the spirit to understand. And finally, the wisdom of God is mature, but the wisdom of the world is immature. And that um, I will get to in a second here. Now, 
in verse 15. Let's just finish chapter 2 here. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? He's quoting there. Um, uh, I forgot to write it down. Well, he's quoting a Old Testament verse there. Who has understood the mind of the Lord as to tell him what's up? Like, obviously nobody. You can't tell God what he doesn't know. He knows everything. You can't get into his mind and do that. But he says, we have the mind of Christ. Through his cross and through the Holy Spirit, we have gained the wisdom of God so that we have now literally the mind of Christ. We can know what God is thinking. He's given that to us. So Paul all along has been saying, okay, there are the pop preachers who have done their thing and the church is dividing because they're trying to make their own celebrity pop preachers in the church. But I've just simply preached a simple message that Jesus is crucified, not caring about popularity or about pleasing people. And in this message, there's a subtle, surprising uh, wisdom of God that people are exploring because in the message is the powerful work of God, not the persuasive words of man, the powerful work of God that is sent in spirit to open our eyes. And we're seeing all these new things. And now we're understanding God. Paul's saying, this is the one message that I want the church to hold to. One message. It's Jesus crucified and risen. It's that Jesus was once in the slum of the Roman Empire, crucified like a common criminal, a slave's end, uh, a death in which polite culture would never mention at a dinner table. That turned into the glorified king of the universe. And then Paul turns to the people and says, take the cross, take the cross, because you know in 126 that many of you were not wise (laughs) according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He goes on and says, look, you guys were like Jesus. You were at the bottom of the barrel of society. But as Jesus was magnified through the resurrection, you have been magnified because you received the message of the cross. This is the one message Paul wants him to hold to. So the wise, the mature, he's saying, are those that take the cross as the one message that unifies the whole church. This is what we will hold to. These are the people we will follow, the one message. This is unifying us. This is the wise. This is the mature, the one message of the cross. Now, finally, in chapter 3, verse 1, I'm only doing four verses in chapter 3 because it actually ends there. But I, brothers could not address you as spiritual people. So remember what he said? Okay, the message of the cross is full of wisdom for the mature. That was 2 verse 6. But you guys aren't quite mature. You're you're squabbling over who's your favorite teacher. So I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, natural people, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. Even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Are you not being merely human? For where one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? So there's an immaturity that the church cannot tolerate, and that is those who hold to factions. They pit multiple messages, and they follow their favorite pop teachers, right? 
But Paul's saying a mature Christian who knows the wisdom of God is the one who says there is one message and it is Christ crucified. And it may be shameful in the ears of the world. and It may make me a nobody, but I trust that there is the day when as Jesus rose from the dead, we too will be glorified and raised and that we will be happy to be on that side of things. And so that's the one message he's calling to no more factions. None of this, I prefer so-and-so. Now, of course, we all have a favorite teacher, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. But when we begin to pit one person against another, well, so-and-so said, therefore, you guys must not be Christians. Or we won't listen to him because that one little thing he said that I probably just misunderstood. One message he's calling him to, and be one there. So here's my question. Um, Are we a church that holds to one message? Or are you a person who holds to one messenger? I've got my favorite. That's him. That's her. Paul would say, let's not be people who trust in the persuasive words of man, but in the powerful work of God and trust the one message of a crucified Savior. Folly to the world, but wisdom to those who have the Spirit. We're going to take communion. It's in the end of each aisle. So during the song, when you feel right with God, go ahead and um, take that. If you've never had a relationship with God tonight, it's your understanding that Jesus went to the cross for you. And we take the bread, the cracker, and the juice to represent his body and his blood. That this is the one message we hold to. This is the one message we follow. And those of us who take this as the one message, no, you are the wise and you are the mature. And we are the ones that God wants to use in the world. So let's gather around it tonight.